0: Well, tonight we kick off our fall vision series. We do this every single year. If you're new to Bridgetown, we take a few weeks in the fall as kind of feels like a new year a little bit and the climate of our city to just recenter on what exactly we mean by practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. Have you ever turned down an invitation and then later regretted it or missed an opportunity and later kind of kicked yourself for it. What was I thinking? Because in the moment, the cost was just a little bit too high. Life, as we all know, is full of invitations. Take a job in another city, to marry this person, which means not another person, to go here, to go there, to start a business, to stick it out in your job, whatever, to end a relationship, to start one, whatever it is. So the experience of receiving an invitation that comes at a high cost And having to make a decision, either yes or no, is familiar to the human condition. And as we all know, it's especially hard when those decisions have the potential to shape the trajectory of our life for decades to come or longer. Now, we just read two invitations of Jesus. The first was a general invitation. Whoever wants to be my disciple, come after me, follow me. The second was a very specific invitation To a wealthy young aristocrat, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, in a little bit, I want to circle back to both invitations, but for now, notice that what the two invitations have in common, they are not invitations to rearrange the mental furniture in the house of our mind and go to heaven when we die, and in the meantime, enjoy living in Portland and just, I don't know, be nice which is what a lot of people think it means to be a Christian. Instead, both of them are invitations to become a disciple. Now, disciple is one of those words that means different things to different people. By discipleship, some people mean leadership development, like with what Jesus did with the 12, and so the idea is, hey, Jesus had 12 people, and he spent all his time with them, raising them up, and that's the Jesus' method to change the world. Every leader should have a small group of people spend time with them, raising them up to change the world. This comes from a Uh, best-selling book from the 1960s called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And I'm all for it. It's a great idea. The problem is that Jesus had way more disciples than the 12. It's easy to forget that. That was a subset of what he called his apostles or the leaders of the future church. But Jesus had hundreds, if not thousands, of disciples who would follow him all over Galilee. Other people, when they say discipleship, mean one-on-one mentorship. The idea is you kind of sit with an older, wiser follower of Jesus, and you study the Bible together, or read a book, or go through a podcast, or whatever is your thing. And again, that's wonderful. It comes from a nonprofit called The Navigators that grew up alongside Billy Graham as kind of an afterword to the modern evangelism method. And I'm all for it. The problem is that Jesus was rarely, if ever, one-on-one with anybody. Now, I'm all for leadership development and mentorship, but the problem with calling these things discipleship is in both readings, disciple is a verb. It's something that either you do to somebody else or that somebody else does to you. And that's just fine, but in the New Testament, it's not a verb. It's not something you do or that is done to you. It's a noun. It's somebody that you are. So just insert a synonym there. Like, I hear all the time, John Mark, who are you discipling? And the little, like, when I'm a little bit in not the godliest mood, because godliness is a little bit of a mood at times. Let's all admit it. <laughs> Sometimes I just want to say, who am I discipling? Did you mean who am I Christianing? <laughs> they look at me really confused. Or who am I believering? Or who am I, followerine? Is that a word? It's not a word? No, we laugh because, no, you can't Christian somebody or follower somebody or believe. You either are or you are not a Christian. In the same way, you either are or are not a disciple of Jesus. So what exactly is a disciple? Well, the word in Greek is mathetes. Can you say that? I love that you're all so awake. I'm sick tonight, so the extra love is quite helpful. And there are a few ways to translate mathetes into English. Disciple, again, is just fine, But since we don't use that word outside of the church, it's easy to import a meaning into it that's not there. Student is another great option. To follow Jesus is to become a student in his school of living. Learning from him not just how to die, but even more importantly, how to live. And this is again where we need to recapture this idea of Jesus as a rabbi or a teacher. Of course, he was so much more, but he was not less. In the Western church tradition, for all sorts of reasons, since the Reformation and the conservative-liberal split in our country a century ago, a lot of people, in particular in our stream of the church, if we're honest, think of Jesus as the Savior, but don't think of him as all that smart. And it's very hard to entrust your entire life to somebody that you do not think is the most brilliant human being to ever live. So we have to recapture this idea that Jesus is brilliant. He is literally the mind of God on display. And in his life and in his teachings, we figure out not just how to die, but how to live. Not just the future, but the present and here and now. So student is great, but again, we import the Western education system into that word, and we think of Jesus as a professor, and I've read his book, or I listen to his podcast, or that one lecture by Jesus was really great, and I see him Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 11 to 11.50 or whatever. And so that's not exactly the idea behind disciple. Another option still is practitioner. I really like that. Somebody who not only hears Jesus' teachings and not even, like, agrees with them, like, yeah, I like that, and I think that's true, but actually, in his own language, puts them into practice. But a number of scholars argue, and all of those are great translations, but a number of scholars argue the best word we have in the English language to capture the idea behind mathetes is the word apprentice. To follow Jesus is to apprentice under him into kingdom living. You see, discipleship, or if you prefer, apprenticeship, was a well-known phenomenon in Jesus' day. Normally, when we talk about it, we tear it right out of its first-century context. In fact, it was actually much older than first-century Galilee. It started several hundred years before in Greece with the philosophers. Plato, for example, was a mathetes of Socrates. In Jesus' first-century rabbinic world, a rabbi would, as a general rule, take on a few apprentices, they would follow him from town to town, spend time with him, sit under his teaching, learn how to live like him, with the dream being that one day they too would become a rabbi. In the meantime, if you were an apprentice to a rabbi in the first century, you have three very simple goals, to be with your rabbi, to become like your rabbi, and to do what he did. Now, if you apply that rubric to our apprenticeship to Jesus, a very clear vision of what it means to follow Jesus or apprentice under Jesus comes into view. To apprentice under Jesus is to organize your life around the same three goals. Goal one is to be with Jesus. This is the first and I would argue most important goal, just to slow down and the hurry and noise and traffic and busyness of life in the modern world to slow down to the pace of Jesus and to set our mind on God and his compassionate goodness toward us and toward all, to direct and then redirect our mind back to God, because if your mind is anything like mine, it's a bajillion places every single day, squirrel. And we do this utilizing the practices or what some call the spiritual disciplines, be that reading scripture in the morning or listening prayer or Sabbath or church, this right here, we're doing it right now, or the bread and the cup around a table or fasting or whatever it is on the docket for that day, utilizing the practices of Jesus just to come back to the here and now and to anchor our mind and even our body in awareness of and connection to God in what St. Teresa and St. John both called silent love. Now, as we all know, we don't live in a world of silent love. We live in a world of traffic and noise and what Microsoft researcher Linda Stone called continuous partial attention. We literally have, multi, you all know this, I don't need to rant again, but multi-billion dollar corporations in the, quote, attention economy, where we think we're the customer, but actually we're the product, all doing everything they can to distract us and addict us, to steal our attention away from God and the goodness of the moment with him. And the call of Jesus is to live not in continuous partial attention, but instead in what A.W. Tozer called constant conscious communion, to move from a life of distraction and noise and on our phone all the time to a life of what Jesus called abiding. Now, this may sound like some kind of a utopian pipe dream to you, but, you know, Tozer, writing from urban Chicago, right in the middle of all the noise, a father of many kids, said that as we, quote, set the heart's attention on Jesus... A habit of soul is forming, which will become, after a while, a sort of spiritual reflex, requiring no more conscious effort on our part. Meaning at first, this will feel clumsy and awkward and a bit of a pain in the neck. It will feel a little bit like discipline long before it feels like delight. But eventually, through what scientists call neuroplasticity, what Paul just calls the renewal of the mind in Romans, your mind, you will literally rewire the neurochemistry of your brain to more and more live in awareness of and connection to God. At first, it'll just be every time you get just a little moment of quiet, that first moment when you wake up in the morning, your head is still on the pillow, that moment when you come to a red light, that moment where you show up a minute early for the meeting and nobody else is in the room, you will just have your mind automatically, just without any effort, just go back to the reality of God. Eventually, as you progress in this discipline, your mind will begin to just stay in the reality of God all through the day, even through the noise and the distraction and the chaos and the pain and the suffering and the stress and just life in the everyday world. And you know, one of the things I've been learning about this idea of, again, Jesus' language for it was abiding over the last year, just in my own relationship to the Spirit of God, is how much it's tied to surrender or if you want to use a bolder, less Portland word, obedience. All right, there's a dirty word in our city right there. But you know, Jesus said it this way, I always do what pleases the Father. Can you imagine if you could say that? How was your week? I always do what <laughs> pleases the Father. <laughs> in every moment of every day, I always do. But there's, there's not a coincidence that Jesus, whose life he moved through the world, I mean, literally as if God was in the air all around his body, right? Our Father in the air is another way to translate our Father in heaven. It's no surprise or no coincidence that Jesus was also a man of obedience and surrender. I always do what pleases the Father. God, what would please you right here? What would please you now? Do you have a prophetic word? Is there something you're doing with this person in this moment? And is there a way for me to partner with you, say yes, to speak into reality what you're already on about? God, do you want me to go here, say there, how do I spend these few moments or hours? How do I spend these few dollars, whatever it is? So learning to live the kind of what my buddy Sky calls the with God life is also about learning how to please the Father. I don't watch uh, very much television, but when I get into something, I get way too into it, right? So right now, it's The Crown. I'm obsessed with The Crown. You give me a night off, and there's me upstairs watching, you know, Claire Foy, brilliant actress. But before that, it was West Wing, which took me about a decade to get through, you know? And I love Aaron Sorkin. I love that his, you know, all of his characters are superheroes, but they're not like Marvel Avengers. They're just smarter and faster than any human being in real life. there's a line from the West Wing. I don't know if it's just an Aaron Sorkin line or they actually say this in the White House. I have no idea. But where they say, I serve at the pleasure of the president. And somehow that just got into me. And I will chuckle sometimes as I go through my day, like, I serve at the pleasure of the president, which is just a way of saying, not my will, but your will be done. I serve at your pleasure, And the thing, if that sounds weird to you or cultish or why would I do that, you have to realize that God's intention toward us is that of a loving Father who is all-wise and all-compassionate. It's goodness toward us. So as we live for His pleasure, we in doing so discover our own pleasure. There's nowhere more joyful to be than right in the center of obedience to the Father's will. And you just can't separate abiding from obedience. Like these two things grow together or they do not grow at all. I mean, Jesus called the Spirit the Holy Spirit. And there is a reciprocal relationship between our experience of the presence of God in day-to-day living and the level of holiness in our mind and body. As we grow in one, the odds are very high that we grow in the other through moment by moment surrender. God, what do you have for me in this moment? I serve at the pleasure of the president. How can I be of service? What is pleasing to you? Just that simple question, sometimes just to ask that when you wake up in the morning, like I try to do it every morning if I can, just as I'm drinking my coffee, just a moment. God, what would be pleasing to you? And normally there's just one or two little things, they're normally very easy, and they are normally acts of love toward other people that just come to mind. What would it look like to be with Jesus? That's goal one. Goal two, out of that lifestyle, out of that baseline, is to become like Jesus. The sociologist James Davidson Hunter, in his book The Death of Character, writes about the shift in America over the last half century from a focus on character to a focus on personality. Cue the explosion of theories of personality and the cult of Enneagram, which is alive and well at Bridgetown Church and all of that. His analysis... um, is that as America has diversified, not just ethnically, which is great, but ethically due to secularism, it's become harder and harder to agree upon a vision of the kind of person that we wanna grow and mature into and grow and mature our society into other than say something like tolerance, which isn't really a virtue, it's more like a way to get along in a pluralistic culture. But still, the funny thing, even in our hyper-secular city that we all love, where the good life in our city is often thought of as sensual, hedonistic pleasure rather than as being a good person, which is the classical view and the Christian view, still, if you go to a funeral, they rarely say things like, oh man, she had really nice teeth, (laughs) or he had just the most cut abs. You should have seen him in Hawaii, (laughs) or she really knew how to buy an expensive bottle of wine. Like, they were so good at eat, drink, and be merry, you have no... We don't say things like that. In fact, that would be a kind of dishonor. If we praise them, what do we praise? Character. Still, even in our city, when we actually come to the moment of sobriety, we know deep down that on our deathbed, if we did not become a good person, we did not live a good life. Now, of course, this is not a new idea, it goes back at least as far as the Greeks and the ancient Mediterranean. But what Greek philosophy never could figure out or even the Old Testament under the Torah never could figure out was how to become a good person as defined by love. Most human beings at some level ache for goodness. How many people are like, I want to be a bad person? Very few outside of a Hollywood like caricature. Most people at some level Ache for goodness. We want to become people of love. The problem is we don't know how. This is where Jesus literally changed the course of human history. No other luminary of the human condition before or since has ever done more to transform souls and societies into love. And don't take my word that go find a secular historian and ask that question, and you will most likely receive a resounding yes. To the degree that people apprentice under Jesus, which sadly is not the same thing as to the degree to which people identify as a Christian or the religion of Christianity, but to the degree that people follow Jesus, all people experience some level of transformation into more and more of love through their personality, from their wound, their family of origin, all of that. None of us start from the same place. But all people who follow Jesus experience a transformation into people of love. The academic label for this is spiritual formation. Spiritual formation, you hear that language a lot around here, is put simply the process by which we are transformed to become more like Jesus, and in doing so, not a clone and some kind of a religious cult, but rather our real, true, free self. Robert Mulholland, who has the best little all in one book place we know of on spiritual formation called Invitation to a Journey, defines it as being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others, meaning the end goal of all of this is love. Now, tragically, the vision, and I say this with no cynicism, the last thing we need is more of that, but just honesty. The vision for spiritual formation in the North American church is often truncated to the trifecta of come to church on Sunday read your Bible and pray in the morning and tithe. Now, I'm all for those three practices. All of them are a part of my rule of life. But in my experience, many people get 30 years down the road with that as a template for how to follow Jesus. And if they are honest, they don't feel all that transformed into love, they just feel older. That's because spiritual formation into the image of Jesus doesn't just happen. None of us become like Jesus on accident you know what I mean? None of us wake up one morning at 47 and we're like, whoops, I'm living the Sermon on the Mount. How did that happen? (laughs) So weird. I've not had a lustful thought in eight years. I don't know where that came from. You know, if I think about it, I don't really worry anymore. I'm just, we're in an election year. I'm just the embodiment of a non-anxious, I don't need to read Friedman's book. I am a non-anxious presence. (laughs) How did that happen? Oh, man, yeah, I just feel so free from the need for things, the need to things to go my way, to be happy. Sure, generosity, of course. That's just the natural byproduct of my heart, yeah. Um, oh, verbal, <laughs> a Jesus thing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what Willard calls condemnation engineering. I would never do that. I would never use things like shame or pressure or verbal manipulation to get people to do the right thing as defined by me. I would never do that, never <laughs> in a million. Like, we laugh because... Nobody becomes that kind of a person, a person in the shorthand of just a person of love, by accident. In fact, the cultural current is often in the other direction. In our working theory of change, which is the paradigm that our entire church is built around, it's why we do home communities, why we do practices in communities, why we create space in our gatherings for the Holy Spirit, if you've come through our church, if you've come through the basics class, you know we walk all of you through what we call unintentional spiritual formation where we just point out that we're all being formed every minute of every day, first by the stories that we believe, or what psychologists call our mental maps, like how we navigate what we think is reality, the stories that come to us constantly through our phone, workplace, some kind of a training for school or whatever, a book we read, Powell's, the internet, social media, friendship, just the assault of the secular narrative and the stories that we often say no to, or we come to believe and then we let into our body and live out of. We're formed by our habits. Like there's so much neuroscience and psychology and philosophy and theology behind this. The things we do do something to us. We become the cumulative effect of our regular habits over a lifetime. We're formed also by our relationships. We all know this. We dress like, think like, vote like, act like, talk like, eat like exercise like or don't like the people that we're in relationship with on a regular basis. And finally, we're shaped and formed by our environment, which for us is Portland, Oregon, the city that we love, and the world of our phone as we live in the digital age, and now we all live two places at once. And it's impossible not to become more like this city as we live here. Now, our point is, this is just a working theory of change, However we follow Jesus, it has to mitigate against all of that. We don't start from a blank slate. So in what we call intentional spiritual formation, each one of these is counter. Counter to the stories that we believe is truth which comes to us through teaching right now, through teaching on Sunday or through reading Scripture or memorization of Scripture or reading a book or a podcast or a midweek lecture or a mentor or a therapist or just a prophetic word over your life, a declaration of what is true about you and your life in God's world. We, we take on the mental maps of Jesus himself, which enable us to then live in such a way that we live in correspondence to reality. We show up to reality, show up to our body, show up to our sexuality, show up to marriage or relationships or money or desire or whatever it is in such a way that we flourish and thrive. Counter our habits is practice or more specifically the practices of Jesus. Things like our seven our silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, Sabbath, simplicity, living in community, things like that where we just orient our heart toward God's spirit and truth. Counter our relationships, our life in community where we do life around a table with other followers of Jesus who push and pull us toward Jesus, not away from him. And our environment and time becomes even more than Portland or our phone, life in the Holy Spirit as we move through our day and our week, as we move through our neighborhood and our city, an awareness of and connection to God. Now, there's a ton more that could be said about this. Four years ago, some of you remember, we spent three months teaching through this, basically. My point for right now is very simple, that we are being formed into the image of somebody or something, whether it's into the image of Jesus or another luminary of choice, or a celebrity, or Portland, or the ideal millennial creative, or mom, or dad, or whatever your image in your mind is. Spiritual formation, we say this a lot, but it's true, is not just a Christian thing, it is a human thing. That diagram is as much neuroscience as it is biblical theology. And so the question, as much as we loathe it in our hyper-individualistic kind of hyper-autonomous Portland culture, the question is not, are you a disciple? It's, who or what are you a disciple of? Who or what am I, are we being formed into? If we chart the character arc of our autobiography out, you know, three, four, five decades, depending on your age, who do you see on the horizon? Notice the question is not, who do you want to become? That's a separate question. It's an important one. It's who do you see yourself becoming? It's so key to regularly ask yourself this and then to ask what stories, what habits, what relationship, what city or environment, how is this forming me? What's this show on Netflix doing to my heart? Because it's doing something. What's this relationship turning me into? Because it's turning you into something. What's this address? This job, this budget, this activity, this, you fill in the blank. What is it forming me into? Into the image of Jesus? Or into the image of someone or something else? To be human is to change. Like we can't stay the same. That's not an option. Not at a scientific level, not at a scripture level. It is to become more or less than who we currently are, more free or less free, more full of joy or less so, more loving or less so. C.S. Lewis, in his work on hell, which of course is anathema to a secular kind of pluralistic culture, said that every person is either becoming a, quote, immoral horror or an everlasting splendor and just made the point that every person is on a trajectory toward life or toward death. Willard said that death just seals the trajectory you've already been on as an honor to your dignity and freedom. Now, whatever you think about hell, that is a loaded emotional subject. Let's set that aside. I have all sorts of thoughts. It would take me three months to figure it out. But for now, can we agree that some people are living in hell today? Some people make a ton of money, are killing it in their career, but they're living in death and destruction right now. Loneliness, isolation, compulsion, addiction, broken relationships, embittered children, torn reputation, frenetic soul, unstable. Like Some people are living in hell now, and other people are living in heaven now. And on a trajectory, day over month over year, more into what Jesus called the kingdom of the heavens, under the rule and reign and full on in the life and joy of God. This is why most elderly people that we meet, I always am hesitant to say this because it sounds ageist. I actually mean it as a term of respect. Most elderly people you mean, and I don't mean like people over 40, I mean, you know. Some of you, I need to say that. I mean, people in there, you know, 85 and up or something are either the best people you know or the worst people you know. You know it to be true. They're either so full of compassion, kindness, comfortable in their own body, present to the moment, that sometimes when we practice communion together and they come forward, I just wonder, what do you have to repent of? I don't think you've sinned since 1987. Like, I don't know, (laughs) too much TV guide or something. I don't know. What is that? And then other people, with, with due respect, I, we all, my guess is, know some people in their 80s or 90s who have the emotional maturity of a 10-year-old who are narcissistic, manipulative, cruel, bitter because life did not go the way it wanted and somehow it's all your fault. People, right now, are on a trajectory, whatever you believe about heaven and hell, set that aside, toward life or toward death. To follow Jesus is to make his end goal your aim, to follow his way to life, to aim to become like him year over year, to grow in the triumvirate at the heart of the kingdom in the New Testament, love and joy and peace. To have Jesus not only as your vision of the kind of person you want to become, not just the way you wanna behave, but the kind of person you wanna become from the heart out, but to take his way or his set of teachings as your strategy for how to become a person of love. Finally, our goal is to do what Jesus did. Or maybe a more helpful way to say that is to do what Jesus would do if he were you. That's a bit of a mouthful, but it's a bit more precise The end goal of the spiritual journey, or in our language, of apprenticeship to Jesus is to become people who love, in the language of the New Testament, in word and in what? Deed. Meaning it's not just that we're nice, although that is a great place for some of us to start, but that we actually love people the way that Jesus loved people. Read the four Gospels. Jesus spent his time loving in all sorts of ways, friend and enemy, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, teaching a whole new way to be human in God's rule and reign, healing the sick, casting out demons, prophesying over people's destiny, practicing hospitality, serving the poor, doing justice, living in communities, so on and so forth. All of these are expressions of love. And the end goal of our spiritual journey with Jesus is to become people of love who then in turn show that love of God to our city and our world, our family, our friends, and even to our enemy. But our goal is simply to continue what Jesus started with his kingdom. Now, this is what we here, and this is not really our language per se, but we just call it practicing the way of Jesus. Because for us, the way of Jesus is exactly what it sounds like. It is a way of life. The early church, if you've read the book of Acts, you know it called itself the way or followers of the way long before it called itself the church. After all, Jesus himself, the founder of it, said, I am the what? Way, the truth, and the life. In my opinion, and I could be wrong, people misread that as a statement about the kind of running debate over who's in, who's out, heaven, hell, all of that kind of stuff. But it's likely, that, and that is a very important conversation to have offline, But it's likely that Jesus wasn't even talking about that, or at least not directly, maybe indirectly. It's likely that he was saying that his way or his set of teachings, as put out in the Sermon on the Mount, his whole way to be human is the way to life in the here and now. Eugene Peterson said of that line, quote, it's the way of Jesus wedded to the truth of Jesus that brings about the life of Jesus. And he just made the point that, you know, after a few decades as a pastor in the North American church, most people pay way more attention to truth than they do to way. But Jesus is both way and truth. To follow Jesus is to follow a way of life. And it's a very specific way. Like Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, gave this language and this metaphor of a narrow way. It's sometimes translated road, but it's the Greek word hadas for way, and a broad way. Again, many people hate that. It's very unpopular teaching of Jesus, and interpret it to basically mean a few people are going to heaven, and everybody else is going to hell to like burn under God's torture forever or whatever. Now, again, set aside, very emotional conversation. I have all sorts of opinions. We don't have time for them. Set that aside. Again, it's likely that's not even what he's saying. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's just put out a teaching on how to live in the kingdom of God in the here and now. By narrow, it's more likely that Jesus means there is a very specific way to live based on his vision of human flourishing in the Sermon on the Mount that will lead you to life. And then there's a very broad way to live. It's basically follow your heart, do whatever you want, and go with the crowd. Just do what feels good, which is how most of our world is more and more, at least a lot of it is living. And in Jesus' sober reality, with a lot of compassion, he would say the end goal, the end of that journey, is what he called destruction. It just, it's, it's a life that falls apart. As we age, we begin to find more and more of our friends who live that way fall apart apart. It's a sober reality. And Jesus is just saying, I am the way to the life that you crave. All of us want what we would call the good life in Western culture. All of us want to be happy, to live free from the need for things to go our way, to live at peace, to live in compassion, to get along, to live a life of generosity and wisdom. We all want this, follower of Jesus or not, Christian or atheist, ancient, modern, Eastern, Western, male, female, pretty much all of us ache for the good life. Jesus' invitation is to come and follow him and to practice his way to life. And this is a way of life that takes practice, or more specifically, again, it takes the practices or the spiritual disciplines or what Ruth Haley Barton, who's a teacher I love and hope to get out at some point, calls sacred rhythms, time-tested ways of being that are based on the life and teachings of Jesus himself by which, very simple, so much that could be said, but by which we make space for God to love us and to transform us into people of love. And we practice this way of life together, not alone. My friend John Tyson was here recently. Most of you were here for that. And uh, I was chatting to him, and he was doing some research on Bonhoeffer for a new book, and most of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If not, don't worry about it. But he found this obscure story where, if you know Bonhoeffer's autobiography, right before World War II, he has this chance to um, abandon Germany and come to New York and take a prestigious professorship at a seminary. And he goes to before God in prayer, and he turns it down, knowing that he will likely die if he stays in Germany. And he does. At the end, he's executed by the Gestapo. And, but he stays in Germany. What's left of the church which is not much, is completely corrupted by the Nazi party. So he goes off, and he's one of the founders of what he called the Confessing Church, which was basically like an underground church movement in Germany. And he starts Finkenwald, which was a kind of clandestine seminary, 150 young German leaders. And it was basically out in what's now Poland, kind of outside of the auspices of the Gestapo. And they do life together. It's a co housing community, like very bohemian, you know, early morning prayer, classes, athletics, poetry reading at night. It was just fantastic. And at some point, as the story goes, and I might get the story a little bit wrong, but a friend of his from Berlin comes out. And Bonhoeffer came from a family of privilege and very kind of genteel family of origin. His friend basically comes out and says, what the heck are you doing out here? Like, reading poetry with hippies in the wilderness. You're like a professor. You're a doctor. You're from a prestigious family. Come back to your senses. And as the story goes, Bonhoeffer doesn't really say much, and he takes his friend, and they get in a rowboat, and they row across this lake. And on the other side is a hill, and they hike up to the top of this hill, and down in the valley below, there's a, a Nazi military base, and Hitler youth are marching instead. And Bonhoeffer says something to the extent of this, and he points at the seminary, must be stronger than that. And he points at the Nazi war machine. In the same way, this, the way that we follow Jesus, must be stronger than that. The city that we live in, the mental maps that come to us through our phone, the relationships that we're in, the habits we practice. And the hard truth is that this right here, the Sunday gathering, is so wonderful. I am for it to the point that I give a huge chunk of my time, my week, and my life to it. I'm all for it. But this all by itself is not stronger than that two hours in here, if that, is not stronger than the other 166 out there. And not only is Jesus here with us, he's out there with us too. So however we follow Jesus, this alone is wonderful, but it's not enough. This is why we believe, one of many reasons we believe so much in life together in community, neighborhood by neighborhood in this city that we love. The only kind of apprenticeship to Jesus that will survive this city, if you're new to it, by the way, welcome. Here's my just harbinger of doom moment for you. (laughs) The only kind of apprenticeship that will survive the post-Christian apocalypse that is Portland is one that is grounded in robust, vulnerable, authentic, committed community. What Bonhoeffer in his book about his time at Finkenwald called life together. That's all that will make it through. And it will not only make it through, it will flourish and thrive in the soil of the city that we call home. And we do this, all of it, in Portland. We love this city. We live in this city, in this area. We pay our taxes. We walk our dog here. Some of us have a dog to walk here now, <laughs> a part of our spiritual formation. Who am I becoming? <laughs> Apparently a much more compassionate person. Um We angle for parking, we enjoy all of the good of this city, we carry all of the pain of this city, and we pray and we live and we work for in Portland as it is in heaven. Don't let that language scare you off, that doesn't mean that we want to like take control of Portland and usher in like the kingdom of God by fiat at all, we want to live in this city as an alternative society over against the cultural current to embody a whole other way to be human. Portland practically invented alternative society. But the funny thing is alternative is mainstream in Portland and increasingly around the Western world. I chuckle whenever I see, like, the resist bumper sticker. Like, who are you resisting? It's like the leftist city on the, in the country. Like, who is there to resist here? <laughs> rebellion is the new conformity, and fidelity to the way of Jesus is the new rebellion, you know? Maybe that's not the right word choice, but it is the counterculture. And I think more and more, like when people come to our church, I'm trying to explain this to them, do you realize and love that the church is a counterculture? This isn't like we do our Portland thing, whatever your version of that is based on your demographic or preference, and we like add Jesus in to the top to like get a little spiritual life as we ride our bicycle or whatever. It's great, ride your bicycle, I'm all for it. But like this is a counterculture Like Jesus said, you will face persecution. By the grace of God, for us, that doesn't mean violence. But man, the stories that I hear from you who are in like full-on professional careers, the pressure that you face at an ethical and religious level is is borderline persecution. I'm hearing more and more stories from you of what it's actually like on the streets of this city. And our dream is to live in such a way, not that we're holier than thou or we think we know better, but to embody an alternative society to this city. A whole other way to be human in love and joy and peace that will change the fabric not only of our own soul, but the dream of course is of the city that we love. Now the elephant in the room is to see this happen, practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland, we have to slow down. And hear me again, I say this year over year, we are not calling you to do more. We're actually calling you to do less. Not addition, on top of your already over-busy life, but subtraction. Henry Nowen, in his book on pastoral leadership, I know most of you are not pastors, but um, I read this over the summer, and it's a short read, and he just had this wonderful section. I love this. He writes, our task, a leader in the church, is the opposite of distraction. So like, think of me as the anti-Facebook in your life, or whatever, right? (laughs) Our task is to help people concentrate on the real but often hidden event of God's active presence in their lives. Hence, the question that must guide all organizing activity in a parish, he's Catholic, or for us, just in our church, is not how to keep people busy, but how to keep them from being so busy that they can no longer hear the voice of God who speaks in silence. So you will continue to hear from myself and our wonderful leaders a compassionate call with a whole bunch of realism, and we get it, Job, family, life, little kids, we get it. But to slow down, to be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did. On that note, on the docket for the year ahead, every year I just give you a little snapshot of what's coming on behalf of our leaders. Four things that come to mind. One, practicing the way, this is our final year. Some of you know we are in a four year long journey in spiritual formation. We come to year four of four. We've done I think 11 or 12 practices so far. A few more, here's what's left on the docket. Um, next is this fall is unhurrying with a rule of life. So if you don't know what a rule of life is or don't have one, it's a whole lot of fun. In the winter is scripture In the spring is minimalism. I'm sorry, simplicity, which is like the Christian version of minimalism, just a little less Marie Kondo and a little bit more Jesus. And, um, so get ready to empty out your closets all spring long. Next summer is preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? Is it a theory of atonement or a justification idea, or is it good news about a kingdom of God that's available to all? And what does it look like to preach the gospel on the streets of the city in a way that isn't like creepy or weird or manipulative or knock, 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 hi, if you were to die today, where would you go? <laughs> <clears throat> which, which I would say, I don't know, but I kind of want to kill you today, and <laughs> why don't you tell me? Um... No, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make light of that, but how do we do that in a a city that often is hostile to the way of Jesus? What does that look like? It's all next summer. And then to end our four-year journey, demonstrating the gospel. Healing the Sick, we'll spend weeks, all next fall, Alan Scott will come back up. Healing practicums, how do we pray for healing, prophecy, casting out demons, gonna host, hopefully, our largest Holy Spirit conference ever. Have some fantastic guests coming in from across the pond. Can't wait for that. Secondly, Holiday Park Church of God. Um, We bought a building, you know that? Or we're buying, yes, we're buying a building. That's a better way to say it. The remodel, drum roll, starts tomorrow. How cool is that? So we were actually supposed to move in this Sunday. That's funny. Um, (laughs) Instead, we start the remodel tomorrow. Um, and we hope to move in first weekend in March. Don't put that in your calendar yet. It will probably be next September. But um, <laughs> no, hopefully uh, by next March. In the meantime, we want to raise as much money as possible between now and the end of the year. So December 31st is the last day in our capital campaign. After that, we'll, stop. we'll talk about it a lot this fall, and then we'll kind of go dark as we enter 2020. So um, between now and then, for the next few weeks, uh, every penny that you give goes straight. Straight to the building, and starting in October when we kick off a new fiscal year, every penny that we give over the weekly operating expenses goes straight to the building. So between now and the end of the year, when you continue to go before God, we're just asking that all of you would give whether you're super wealthy and have a ton of extra money or you're a college student or you're a middle schooler or what even if it's just $3, that you would give something and that you would give as the Spirit leads you with joy, with sacrifice, with freedom, and with trust. Third, we're ramping up both Alpha, which kicks off in a few weeks, and prayer. Most of you know we've been praying on Tuesday morning, 7 a.m. We continue to do that. Gerald's kicking off the prayer course in a few weeks, right, on a Sunday afternoon. You'll hear more about that. As well as he's kicking off noon prayer on Wednesdays. Is that here right now until the building's open? So, here, if you work downtown or you want to just kick in on your lunch break and take some time to just sit before God, pray, and this is hopefully the first two slots of many more to come as we begin to really build out a robust life of prayer. And finally, we're moving to more and more team leadership. This is nothing new, we've been doing it for several years, but over the next year or two, we plan to take some more dramatic steps forward. Most of you already know I'm not the lead pastor of this church, I just talk too much, Um, but I'm not the lead pastor. That's not our model. We have a community of leaders. And we want to move more and more into that as the next few years go by. I'm not going anywhere, but I want to focus more on teaching and spiritual formation and create space for other leaders who are much better at things than me. And and to join Gerald and Bethany and myself, we're welcoming Morgan and Karen Davis to our eldership team. We'll introduce them to you next Sunday. Most of you already know them. They're at the church way more than I am, and they don't get paid a penny. They're wonderful, have lived a few blocks from the new church building for 25 years or something like that, raised four kids right in the neighborhood are just stellar people. Welcoming Pam McConnell, who's not here tonight, to our board of directors is where Sarah tone. Sarah, are you here tonight? Shout at me. No, she's some, somewhere. Are you up here? Sarah, can you just wave at everybody? This is Sarah, and that's Luke, her hubby. They're absolutely wonderful. And Sarah and Pam bring just a wealth of experience as VPs out of the corporate world to all that kind of side of the nonprofit of the church. So those are kind of the four things on the docket. For those of you who are in a community we have a practice for you for a few weeks at bridgetown.church slash vision, where you do, we do this every year. You make a community plan, and then a week with an annual apprenticeship plan. For those of you not yet in a community, the next basics class is just a few weeks away. We only do this three times a year, so don't miss it. This is where we pastor you into a community in your neighborhood if you want to take that step. It's basically how you join our church, for lack of a better word. You begin to practice the way of Jesus with a community of people in your neighborhood. And then finally, if you're here tonight, and I need to say this, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've yet to enter the water of baptism. You've yet to say, I wanna reorient my whole life around the three goals of be with Jesus, become like him and do what he did in order to experience the life that I ache for. I wanna repent and believe or really trust in Jesus' mental maps to reality as the way to life, then the invitation, as always, from Jesus is come and follow me. Come pray with us tonight. Come into the waters of baptism in a few weeks. Follow after Jesus. Now, to end, just two very short pastoral thoughts. One is this. You know, we have one more year left of practicing the way. And I really feel, this could just be for me, but I think it's for our church I feel like that I'm just to urge you, and you are to urge me, to finish strong. I'm turning um, 40 next year, don't tell anybody, but level four, and um, <laughs> as, my, as part of that, like, kind of epoch into the second half of life, I've, it's my intention to run a marathon for the first time, right, so I've run a half marathon a ton, but never the full thing, right, That's, who's sick, you sick people out here, <laughs> who just said that, what's wrong with you? So I'm gearing up, right, you know, and just like, all right, what would that look like? I'm, you know, running 10 miles once a week right now, but 26.2, that's a long way. So I'm doing it with my, I think with my sister and my brother-in-law, who are like fitness nuts. You know those people. You know who you are. We all hate you, you know? It's like every time I'm with them, they're like, so how's the workout routine going? Like, you learning a new thing about like carb intake or whatever? And I'm like, yeah, that shalom, y'all is really good. And if you get there before 6, you can sit outside, and, like, the falafel's pretty cheap. I'm learning that, you know. Um, (laughs) But it's that whole thing, right? So it's always, like, the science they're all into, and they have a trainer. Anyway, all that to say, they are kind enough. I think Brooke, at least my brother-in-law, is going to run it with me. And they were telling me, and most of the science was right over my head, but about all this new science around when you're training for a race, at the end of that race, when you're doing your kind of long training run, and you're most tired, that last mile or quarter mile even, you have to sprint or just give it everything you have, like literally kick your body into gear and fly over that ending, kind of that last little chunk of road. And I don't understand the science, but it does something to your body, to your muscle memory that makes you faster the next time you go out. I just feel like that was a fitting metaphor for where we're at as a church. I know there's a temptation to kind of, have been doing this for three years, like, Uh, let let me just kind of peter out a little bit and kind of take my foot off the gas and relax, and I'm kind of tired of this community, and I don't really want to do this, and I'm busy. But I think that actually this is a key moment for us And if we kick in and we give our full heart to all that Jesus has for us, and we just say yes to every invitation of Jesus to us for the next year as a church, as communities, and as souls before God, I think there's so much that God has for us that will give shape to whatever comes next after this journey. Secondly, and to end, you know, a great question to sit in all the time, in particular at fall or in the new year or after a vacation, is... Where do we see Jesus' invitation to a deeper surrender? There's always an invitation of Jesus. We read those two texts earlier with two invitations. Again, one, general, whoever would be my disciple. The other, specific, for this dude, this young, wealthy aristocrat, to sell everything and follow after Jesus. We often vilify the man in that story, and we think of him as this like, horrible person who said no to Jesus, it's easy to miss Like he was nothing of the sort. He was a good, moral, Torah-keeping, God-loving Hebrew man who still knew that he was missing out on something. And he came to Jesus asking a genuine question about where is there more life? In fact, in early church tradition, I have no idea if this is true, but actually identifies that man as Mark, who's later called John, my namesake that he later came back after he said no in the story. Church tradition is he later came back. I have no idea if that's true, but Ronald Rollheiser has a little section on this story in Sacred Fire, which is a book we're that's kind, of, kind of making the rounds in our church the last six months. He frames this story as the invitation of Jesus to the mature, as the invitation from goodness to greatness. He writes, Would that we could unlearn what we know and look at this story with fresh eyes. Because perhaps no one in the Gospels more clearly represents the habitual struggle of the mature, committed man or woman than does this young man. Jesus' invitation to him is Jesus' invitation to every good man or woman to move from goodness to greatness. It is significant to note that after turning Jesus' invitation down, the rich young man went away sad. Not bad, just sad. He came to Jesus as a rich, sad young man and he went away as a rich, sad young man. He did not lose anything except an opportunity. What was his sadness? The sadness of not being a saint. So let's not miss the opportunity that is everyday life with Jesus. Jesus is always calling us to a deeper surrender. The specificity of that call changes from person to person, year to year, age to age. But it is always at some level a call to a deeper surrender that's grounded in trust and with it a greater freedom into life. So as you go home tonight, even now as we worship and process all this before God or as you sit with God in the week ahead or on your Sabbath next weekend, it's a great question to sit on. What is the next step of surrender in my journey from goodness to greatness and my journey into the image of Jesus and his life and his love, and his joy, and his peace. Let's stand together and pray. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown.Church slash give for more information.